This edition of the UQ Global Leadership Series held at Victoria Park in Brisbane, Australia, explores the topic navigating family mental health. Families are at the front line when it comes to navigating the mental health and substance abuse issues that impact so many young people. As part of Queensland Mental Health Week, family health experts Dr Joel Cullen, Dr Janie Lung, Professor Crystal Middledorp and Dr Natasha Reed came together to share insights into their research and answer questions from the community on this challenging topic. This event was introduced by Professor Catherine Wallace. Good evening everyone. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and their custodianship of the lands on which we meet today and on behalf of UQ I pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country. We recognise their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. So I'm Professor Catherine Wallace, Head of the Main Academy of General Practice at, here at UQ, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to the latest instalment of the UQ Leadership Global Leadership Series. This event program is now in its 11th year of thought-provoking conversation and debate around the big issues that shape our community and our world. Um, the Global Leadership Series turns its attention tonight to a topic of pressing importance and universal relevance, family mental health. We know that families are at the front line when it comes to navigating the mental health and substance abuse issues that impact so many young people, and that systems designed to support them, their, career, their carers, educators and clinicians through these challenges are often difficult to access and under-resourced. Our presenters this evening are firstly Dr Joel Cullen, a family therapist and mental health clinician and lecturer in mental health, child protection and human development in the School of Nursing, Midwifery and Social Work. Dr Janie Leung, who is an NHMRC Development Fellow at the National Centre for Youth Substance Use Research at UQ, researching the epidemiology of substance use and mental health. Professor Crystal Middledorp, child and adolescent psychiatrist and clinical researcher on the role of genetic and other familial influences on the development and persistence of psychopathology across the lifespan at the Child Health Research Centre at UQ and Child Youth Mental Health Service, Children's Health, Queensland Hospital and Health Service. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, and finally, Dr. Natasha Reed, a clinical psychologist and senior research fellow, just promoted um, at UQ Child Health Research Centre, seeking to raise awareness of prenatal alcohol exposure and specifically the neurodevelopmental condition of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Now I'll hand over to our first speaker, Dr. Joel Cullen, please join me in welcoming him. My brother-in-law, I saw my brother-in-law this morning, he asked me what I'm talking about and I find it hard to give a concise answer to that, but I said, it's uh, Mental Health Week, I'm talking about mental health and families, and he said, that doesn't sound very uplifting, um, which surprised me, and I, I thought about it, and I thought, he's actually right, when you talk about mental health these days, it's actually quite depressing, um, depending on, on the context. Um, we'll see how we go. Hopefully we can have at least a mixed mood state by the end of this. So I'm a social worker and an academic, but uh, first and foremost, I'm a practitioner, a uh, family therapist. I've been in private practice for a long time. And what I want to talk about tonight is informed by research, but also by many thousands of hours of actual in the room contact with uh, families and family members. Um, broadly, I want to speak about two themes, context and relationship, and the importance of those things in how we think about, how we practice mental health, how we research mental health, and how we establish policy. 
Uh, when I talk about relationship, I mean a couple of things. I mean relationship between people, which is fairly obvious, but I also mean relationship between phenomena, between problems, for example. Hopefully I can bear that out a bit more. Uh, I want to talk about these things because I think we have a mental health system that is uh, largely focused on decontextualised individuals, uh, whether we're talking about children or adults. Uh, and I am an advocate for systemic thinking, which is part of the family therapy thing. Again, hopefully I can convey that well enough tonight. I want to begin by telling a story. Uh, it's a 20-odd-year-old story, more than 20 years old, of my first weeks in a child and youth mental health service. Um, it's a somewhat arbitrary story, one that I've told a few times, but I think it bears out a lot of what I want to convey tonight. Um, so, in brief, and the, part of the reason for selecting the story is it can be told very briefly, I think. Um, so my first weeks working in this service, my previous employment had been in an adult inpatient psychiatric facility, uh, and I was working in this, in this service, and like everyone in the service, all the allied health staff, we had a caseload of 20 to 25 uh, children, adolescents, all of whom someone was concerned about fairly self-explanatory process. We'd conduct an assessment based on the presenting problem, and each time we had a, a meeting, we would uh, eat cheese, and some of our clients would float to the top of uh, a, a list on a roster, and we would have to present a, uh, the case manager would in turn present a formulation, which is a specific kind of summary of the assessment, and uh, a diagnosis and a treatment plan. And diagnosis was, uh, was and still is compulsory in these settings. So the story is, uh, one day I was on my way to one of these meetings, uh, again very early in the piece for me, and I didn't have uh, a diagnosis for one of the clients I needed to do a presentation about. This is a six-year-old boy, year one boy, uh, he missed a whole school term, uh, not the first term as I recall, but that's not wholly relevant. His parents couldn't get him to school. Uh, I said, I'd met the boy, I'd met his mum who brought him in. Uh, but I didn't have a, an access one diagnosis for him. Now, fortunately, I ran into uh, the consultant psychiatrist in the hallway and I was able to ask that person a question. I, I you know, conveyed my plight and I, in 10 seconds, conveyed what I've just described to you. Boy in year one hasn't been to school for a term. The consultant at that juncture said, anxiety disorder, and that was it. Uh, and I remembered, I remember that moment clearly where I was standing in that building at that time because it really got me thinking about lots of really complex things. Um, there's, a, there's a tangent that beckons at this point because what strikes me about that is that lots of psychiatric diagnoses are purely, uh, are descriptive rather than explanatory. The key thing about this scenario was, you, you might have heard the term school refusal, which is a a sort of, it's, not a, it's a, still a term commonly used in mental health practice, but it's not a diagnosis, it's sort of a quasi-diagnosis that itself is purely descriptive, doesn't again contain any explanatory information. Um, and I needed something that, was, that would fit the bill for government statistical purposes, that's why I needed a DSM diagnosis. Now, just to go back a step or two, uh, just to explain something about my background, I studied social work because I was interested in mental health work, I always wanted to work in this area and, and predominantly have. Um, apart from a brief stint in child protection work and then work in academia. And I was very interested in psychotherapy right from the start, so I voraciously studied psychoanalytic theory and psychodynamic practice, etc. And very early on in the piece, I was introduced or stumbled across serendipitously family therapy, the family therapy literature. I can remember the first books that I read and the order in which I read them. Uh, and that was a revelation to me at the time uh, uh, in some of the family therapy language. It was an epistemological transformation because it really changed fundamentally the way that I thought about all sorts of things. 
and there was no going back from there. And I subsequently went on and wrote a master's dissertation and a PhD about cybernetics, which is a term that I shied away from using for the subsequent 15 years, but I don't anymore, cybernetics, systemic thinking, etc. The revelation for me at the time was that you know, all approaches to therapy or treatment, to use a more medicalised word, have their basis in some theory of problem formation and problem resolution, whether you know, explicitly, normally, but either way they have to have. So uh, you know, our theory of problem formation will determine whether we uh, utilise a psychodynamic approach, a cognitive behavioural approach, uh, you know, prescription of medication to manage or resolve a problem, for example. And family therapy, it was evident to me right from the start, had its basis in a whole different model of even of causality, a whole different way of, of understanding phenomena and the relationships between them. There's, so there's this thing embedded in it about circular causality. And it was like nothing else. This is why if you're exposed to that and it makes sense to you, there's no going back from there. Uh, and so what it helped me start to understand is that without needing to get bogged down in psychiatric diagnosis, and it's very, very helpful for me to have learned uh, that model of thinking, just as it's very helpful still to be able to think psychodynamically, etc. Without being bogged down in psychiatric diagnosis or in causality, what causes what, certainly in a, in a unilateral sense, uh, the fam family therapy thing to me emphasised the great importance of context and how we need to try hard to understand that. So when we're seeing a, a, a client, uh, we, uh, you know, for want of a better word, um, we should think about the context and explore it widely, still with our eyes on the price, still recognising we need to help with some presenting problem or other normally. Um, but maybe more than one person needs help in this context. Maybe we can't properly resolve a presenting problem until we can understand the implications of the, the change we might be inducing throughout what we call our intervention. And we can't perhaps just pluck a person from the context in which they exist and understand them, assess them, treat them, change them and then put them back from whence they came and expect that uh, all will be well. Sometimes that's the case, but that's not necessarily the case because it's not necessarily how systems work in that, uh, through that lens, families work, people work. And there are well-established principles, you know, there's abundant research over, generated over many, many decades about the kinds of things that we need as individuals at any stage of life to be okay. Now, most of us also know through life experience, personal life experience, it doesn't have to be professionally gleaned that when one problem is resolved or just spontaneously remits or goes away, uh, it's not uncommon for another problem to take its place. This is just a, this is a fairly typical kind of phenomenon, one thing after another. So in the example I gave before, you know, the boy goes back to school and hypothetically the mother develops depression and then that goes away or it is resolved somehow, then maybe there's conflict in the parental relationship. And that sort of thing as a hypothetical scenario is something that's not atypical. Uh, so what we need to do is pay attention to the, to the systemic balance in the families we're working with. And all this is just the stuff of normal life I want to emphasise as we're trying to, uh, as parents, those of us in the room who can relate to this, are trying to uh, raise kids, make sure our children are okay, get them to school, uh, attend to our other relationships, pay the bills, um, derive some satisfaction in the margins of life if you're able to do that. Uh, and that's to say nothing about the many, many people who face added challenges through uh, poverty, a disadvantage of many kinds, trauma, etc. So what I want to emphasise is that good systemic thinking and practice takes account of all of this and that's what I think should inform education and practice and research and policy formulation in mental health. But I think that's not always the case. Now, I also just want to emphasise family therapy as a thing, as a phenomenon which is quite misunderstood and difficult to describe I think at times, uh, isn't necessarily about seeing whole families all the time. So in my practice, for example, I have seen 
hundreds, I've sat in a room with hundreds of families to talk with them about whatever needs to be discussed at that time. But in every instance, that's been because that, to my mind, uh, has been the thing to do at that time in relation to that problem or the point that it's evolved to. And many more times than that, thousands of times I've sat with parents, for example, and uh, if there are two parents in a family, that's always with both parents, which I maybe can touch on again, I will come back to later. But I've sat with parents in the absence of their children who I may or may not have met or may or may, or may not ever meet, again, because I make decisions based on uh, you know, an appraisal of what needs to be done with, in relation to that problem at that time. And I also see lots of individuals. So again, my point is the way forward here should be based on our appraisal of the presenting problem and the context. There's a, a guy named Milton Erickson who was a psychiatrist and a genius of therapy and change in my view, and he used to say something I cite quite often, that is, since every person, or he said every patient is unique, a new therapy should be invented for every single one, which is a beautiful construct, I think, but that's not, that doesn't tend to be the way we do things. I think there are numerous problems with the ways in which we think about and approach mental health, and I just want to touch on three here, three broad but important examples to my mind again. One is that we have a mental health system that is largely built around compulsory diagnosis, relevant to the story I told in brief before. And because of the way we've uh, constructed the better access to mental health system, for example, that has also pervaded the private system as much as the, almost as much as the public. The second thing that I think is problematic uh, is that we have a public mental health system where entry and exit criteria are based uh, largely on age. You reach this age, you attend this service, you reach this age, you, you are no longer eligible for service here. One of the implications of that is in normal life, families often have more than one problem uh, and many families will end up having uh, multiple service providers and or agencies involved in their care. Too many cooks can be problematic. That's one of the implications of that. And the third, which is really a sort of a subset or an extension of that second problem as I see it, is a, a really clear demarcation or separation of our child and adolescent and our adult mental health systems. I think that is also problematic. Uh, there are other problems, I think, such as the way, when we, sorry, such as when we talk about and try to implement uh, family inclusive practice, family based care, there's lots of similar terminology. What we really mean very often, statistically speaking, is um, engagement with mothers. Uh, now, the stats in terms of women's and men's engagement in therapy and in uh, mental health in parenting programs, for example, when the identified problem or concern is about a child or adolescent, the stats are incredibly skewed. And there are a couple of problems with that. One I need to qualify as soon as I say it, I think I need to qualify. The first is the implicit uh, sexism and gender inequity that comes with that. Now, I know I have to qualify because I've talked about this a few times in different contexts, and I know that I, I, it has been interpreted as me saying men have been excluded, fathers have been excluded from parenting programs, etc. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, almost the inverse. What I'm saying most fundamentally is that if there are two parents in a family, regardless of sex or gender, it is, in my experience, in my view, very, very important to involve both. All sorts of reasons to do with how the structure of families work and, and the interwoven nature of problems, parental uh, co-parenting capacity, couple relationship problems, how they relate to child behaviour problems, et cetera, et cetera. But either way, it is just a thing that if a parent is going to be involved, I know from my practice, for example, is this is, not, this is, this is anecdotal, but I know that of the thousands of people I have seen, uh, I see roughly equal numbers of men and women as individual adult clients. So I don't keep stats, but roughly speaking, it's the same. 
but if it's a problem or a concern to do with a child or adolescent, a relationship, a family, it is 99 to 1 a woman who will make the call, who will bring the family to therapy. And my way of practising if, is if I believe, which I always do, that if there are two parents, I want both to be involved, then 99% of the time they are both involved. Some subtlety that I've lost track of and how I communicate about it, I don't really know how it works. I know it is a formidable challenge and literature in parenting programs, for example, talks about that and research talks about that all of the time, a lot of the time, that men are difficult to engage. But that's a problem, I think. And if we don't involve both parents, if there are two, for example, and we might miss vital information, we might miss vital opportunities to achieve change. So again, this is sort of one of the tendrils of systemic thinking. Now, none of this is to say that the identified problem or that uh, a diagnosable thing doesn't exist. So ADHD, we were talking earlier about the, the huge uh, the proliferation of diagnosis of ADHD, recognition of ADHD in recent times, for example, one way or another diagnosis of that condition. Um, schizophrenia, and you know, I can't even touch on here in the time available the, some of the implications of the things I'm talking about for major mental illness. But the point is we need to avoid reifying some of these things. And what I mean is, so to come back to the example of, the, the, um, of uh, anxiety, which I think is again a, a very prevalent, we, we are drenched in statistical data about prevalence of mental illness these days. And we now have a generation, almost more than one, who talk about having anxiety, not experiencing it anymore. The language has changed. I've noticed this trend. It's a, it's a marked thing, again, to my ears, to my eyes. Uh, people who identify with it, uh, a bit like we you know, might talk about, if it's not too crude an analogy, having type 1 diabetes. It's a thing, you know? And anxiety can be terrible and it can be debilitating and it can stop our, our child going to school and parents being able to get the child to school. The child's anxiety, the parents, it can be contagious for loving, well-intentioned parents, obviously. But in my experience, anxiety, most things, almost every phenomenon, psychiatric or otherwise, is understandable in context. Uh, and that's a really key thing. Uh, we want to avoid redundant sort of explanations, des des describing something in psychiatric terms, and I'm not referring to the profession of psychiatry there, but, uh, but modern ways of approaching and understanding mental health and mental illness. We sometimes generate explanations that circle back on themselves and don't bring in new information. But we want to understand these things in the context in which they exist. So they're very complex matters, all of this, and you know, 10 minutes, or I think I was supposed to try to keep it to eight if I could, and I, I don't know how well I'm doing. 10 minutes is not enough to touch on all of the complexity of this, obviously, but the complexity is the point. So to try and sum up, psychiatric diagnosis, which is not the point of my whole uh, a critique of that, is not the point of my whole presentation, but we want, to, we want to remember that it is but one way of describing something. And usually, like diagnosis in general, only describing, not explaining. Uh, again, to remember that description is different from explanation, and explanation is different from solution. And shouldn't the work, I think the work we do as mental health professionals should be about solutions to problems. There are those who disagree with that and think that sometimes it's about uh, a quest for deeper understanding of something, etc. If, if, if a client, a patient personally signs up for that and seeks that and they attain it, then maybe you can deem that to be problem resolution anyway. But shouldn't we be thinking about how we can get this boy back to school, for example, in the scenario before, how we can help his parents, his family, and how we can help all of them be okay. This is the thing thinking about more than one individual prospectively at a time. Is there one more minute? There's not. That's it, I'm at the end of a paragraph, so I'll stop there, I'll forget the last paragraph. Thank you very much, everyone. 
So I'm Dr. Jenny Long. I'm an epidemiologist, and I analyze a lot of data. So um, unlike Joe, the previous speaker, I don't have experience meeting individual patients, but I do have connections to billions of people from across the world from spending thousands of hours analyzing population-level data from across different places in the world. So before we talk about the main um, topic of what I was wanting to share with everyone today, I just want to tell you a little bit about our center. So I'm from the National Center for Youth Substance Use Research. And our vision is to protect young people. We do that by conducting high quality research, um, especially focus on, focusing on issues related to addiction and substance use. So our center is funded by the Department of Health and the Australian government, but also the World Health Organization and the United Nations use our findings to inform health policies to protect young people from all across the world. We also work with organizations to make our findings accessible to the general public and communities. And we go into schools to do research and schools outreach to empower young people with knowledge about substance use issues and addiction. So our center covers a variety of different substance use and addiction topics. For example, we have research related to alcohol use. So we did research and we find that a lot of parents are supplying or sharing a drink with their adolescents or teenagers or children in the assumption that that would teach them responsible drinking. But to our contrary, to expectation, it didn't work. We followed the adolescents until they become adults and it didn't work. So the children and teenagers who got drinks, alcoholic drinks from their parents, actually were at higher risk of engaging in risky behavior. So this is really important knowledge that we want to share to the community. Another example of really um, topical research areas at the moment are cannabis use. And our research find that cannabis use during adolescence is linked to long-term neuro neurological and psychological negative impacts as well as social impacts for the adolescents. This is really important um, information that we want to share, especially with the population level of perceiving that alcohol, um, perceiving that cannabis use is harmful and intending to use cannabis if it were legalized, that's increasing, including in adolescents and including in parents. Jumping into the topic that I want to share with everyone today is we're going to talk about another hot topic at the moment, which is e-cigarettes use and vaping. So at our center, the National Center of Youth Substance Research, we ask a bunch of research questions and then we analyze it. Um, use, we analyze data from all over the world to try and find the answers. So a first question we ask is, do e-cigarettes help people quit smoking? The answer is yes. When we combined data, when we did systematic reviews of all the available evidence available in, that is all, all available published, and analyze it using meta-analysis techniques, then yeah, we find that it is helping people quitting smoking and it's more effective than NRT, which is the current first line. It is actually, e-cigarettes are actually invented by pharmacists for, to help people quit smoking. So the second question we ask is, 
Are vapes less harmful than smoking? The answer is highly likely, and that is from laboratory and toxicologist tests. So vapes from those tests are far less harmful than smoking. We know that at the moment, smoking traditional cigarettes are one of the most harmful substances on earth, killing a lot of people. Analysis of cigarettes have found that there are on average 7,000 chemicals in a traditional cigarettes. That's compared to about 100 harmful chemicals in a vape. So vapes are still harmful. It's not saying that vapes are harmless. But, and also at the moment, the smoke from burning the traditional cigarettes, that's the part that is causing the majority of lung cancer and other diseases that come with the harms of using tobacco. But however, the long-term harms of vaping is still unknown at the moment because it's relatively a new thing. Next question we ask, does vapes cause youth to start smoking? Our, our analysis of data from across the world found that it's unlikely. So systematic review and meta-analysis of all studies, including confounding factors and pre-existing risk factors, find support do not support that vaping causes young people to start smoking. In the United States, where the trend of vaping has started first, so trends of vaping has escalated and increased so much in the population. If vaping causes smoking, then prevalence of smoking, we would expect that to be increasing as well in adolescence, but we did not find that. So vaping trends have increased in the United States, but smoking trends of traditional cigarettes have continued to decline. Those population surveys also ask the youth's intentions of whether they intend to smoke a cigarette. And the yeah, majority are saying no, and more and more people are saying no to, to traditional cigarettes, including those who are currently vaping. I think the question we should be asking is not asking whether vaping is causing young people to start smoking. We, because we should be discouraging young people to start vaping, even if it doesn't cause them to start smoking. So what messages are young people being exposed to um, about vaping and e-cigarettes? And we know that young people spend a lot of time online and on their phones, on social media. So our last question that we are currently studying is, how are vapes portrayed on social media? We did analysis of what is being shown on social media. And we find that young people are exposed to a lot of vaping and e-cigarette related posts that are positive. So back in 2020, when this was a relatively new thing in Australia, we analyzed TikTok data. So TikTok, the social media platform that all the young people are on. And we find so many videos. And they've, all the videos have already been viewed over 1.5 billion times. A lot of the videos are showing vaping and e-cigarettes used as being fun or cool. And a follow-up study, we find that those ones that are portraying e-cigarettes used as positive or funny or cool or attractive with different flavors, those are the ones with the most increased likes and views as well. What do we need to do now? Actions we need to do are we want to continue sharing the latest information so that we can empower teachers, parents, and young people to have evidence-based open discussions. And we urgently need to stop marketing vapes to our youths on social media. Thank you very much.
Good evening. I'm uh, Christel Middeldorp, Professor in Child and Youth uh, Psychiatry. As was already said, a conjoint position between UQ and Children's Health uh, Queensland. So, and what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes is why parental characteristics like mental disorders, but also parenting, are associated to children's mental health uh, disorders. And the most important message is that these associations are not always causal. And the next message I want to uh, bring across is that despite the fact that these associations are not always causal, that doesn't mean that it's not important to address these parental characteristics or support parents in how they parent their children. So to start with the first question, what can cause associations between parental characteristics and children's mental disorders? So an important thing is genetics. Mental disorders are highly genetic. Bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, are for about 80% influenced by genetic factors. Anxiety and depression for about 40 to 50%. Childhood onset disorders like ADHD or autism spectrum disorders between 60 to 80% heritable. So that means that if a child resembles their parents and they both have a mental disorder, this could well be due to the fact that they share 50% of their genes. Another possibility is that the environment the child is exposed to, and that environment is created by the parent, that that has a direct effect. So then the association is causal. And then the third option is that there is gene-environment correlation. So the environment a child is exposed to is related to their genetic makeup and not random or not only related to the parent. Example of passive gene environment correlation is a child who uh, has two parents who are um, highly educated. So this, uh, these parents transmit their genes that give the child the genetic uh, predisposition to also do well at school. But these parents are very likely to also provide an environment that is academically stimulating. So they read to their children, they take the child to the museum, and all these things. And that's what we call gene-environment correlation. And the question is, reading to these children, bringing them to the museum, does that add anything to what they already have in their genes, or is it just fun? And that's perfectly fine, but that means that that may mean that it doesn't help to bring other children to museums. But I'll get to that point later because it may also not mean anything. The other thing is that there can be, so this was passive gene environment correlation. You can also have evocative gene environment correlation. So you have this smart uh, child, because it's a new mix of uh, genetic uh, variants, this smart child is raised by parents who are not particularly smart, but what they do is they give the child access to books and they take it to the museum because that's what their child wants. That's what we call gene, executive gene environment correlation. And then there's active gene environment correlation, and that's that the, the uh, smart child goes to the museum themselves because that's what they like. 
to disentangle these effects from each other, you can't just do a general population-based uh, uh, study because then you can't disentangle the genetic effects from the environmental effects. You need genetically informative designs like adoption studies, twin studies, and yeah, many different uh, designs. So what we did was we reviewed the studies using a um, uh, genetically informative design, looking at associations between parental characteristics and children's mental disorders. And um, that led to an inclusion of 89 studies in the last 10 years. So that shows how important people still think this topic is. And what we found is that, not surprisingly, a lot of the associations are caused by genetic factors. But there are still direct effects, and there is also gene environment correlation. So this means that some of the studies before have drawn the wrong conclusions about their findings. And I will take one example of the studies that we reviewed. It was a study in a very big Norwegian uh, mother-child cohort where they measured maternal depression prenatally and then repeatedly over time. And then as soon as the child was born, they measured childhood emotional and behavioral problems. And what they found is that perinatal depression is related to childhood problems at age eight. However, as soon as you correct for the uh, genetic factors, or sorry, as soon as you take into account the genetic factors and the other familial factors by including the sibling in the design, then this prediction disappears. The only effect of maternal depression is of concurrent maternal depression. So if at age eight, the mother is depressed. Then there is a direct effect of, that, of those depressive symptoms to the child. So the whole prediction by that perinatal depression is due to factors that are related to perinatal depression. For example, the fact that those mothers are also at more risk to be depressed at age eight but it's not a causal effect, which is important because that means that although even if we missed that maternal depression at birth, we can still um, help this child and support this uh, family. This child is not doomed forever. That's important for how we think about things. What's also important is, as I said before, that causality doesn't mean that we can't have interventions that still focus on things that are not causally related to mental disorders. And I will focus on um, another phenotype, dyslexia, a specific learning disorder in reading and writing. We also know from genetically informative designs that dyslexia and um, not reading books are correlated. But that's not causal. Children who can read well read more books and that's because they can read well. It's not that they can read well because they re read more books. It's the other way around. But what do we do with a child with dyslexia? They have to read books. And it does help. If you look at the children with dyslexia in that specific group, 
the children who read more, who practice more, they improve more because that's the only thing we can do to get them to be a bit better. But on the general population, the amount of books is not causally related to how well you read. And that's the same when you look at parenting programs. Parenting is to the most extent not causally related to childhood mental disorders. It, uh, if you look at, an, uh, at the numerous randomized clinical trials that are done on parenting programs, they are very effective in supporting these children and reducing the mental health symptoms. I'd like to um, follow up on what Joel was saying, that the fact that child psychiatry and adult psychiatry, that there's so, such a huge gap, that those are separate worlds, that's really a missed opportunity. What we should focus on is integrated care where we address both the children's mental uh, disorders as well as the parental mental uh, disorders because that will help them both and also because of these mutual influences between childhood symptoms and parental symptoms. Thank you. I'm Dr. Natasha Reed, and I'm a senior research fellow recently <laughs> at the Child Health Research Centre at the Faculty of Medicine. I'm a very nervous public speaker, just to declare openly. <laughs> My husband's here tonight, and he can attest to this because he makes fun of me all the time about how nervous I get when I have to public speak. So just declaring that openly. I don't know whether it's worse to go at the end or go at the start. <laughs> it's like you have to sit through all the talks or you get it over quickly. Um, I don't know, I'm still working that out. <laughs> at least the audience has warmed up. <laughs> so in my time today, I'm going to share with you some of the common experiences that families have described to us in our neurodevelopmental clinic here at the University of Queensland and through the research that we do in our clinic. This is not based on any one individual person's story, but an amalgamation of many stories over a number of years. So imagine that your child is displaying highly challenging behaviours, and you're feeling re really worried about their behaviours and distressed about the impact that this is having on them at home, school, and in the community. So you go to a health professional to seek help. But what you experience from that health professional is that your concerns are not taken seriously. You are made to feel that you must be a neurotic parent or that the concerns you are reporting are actually due to your skills as a parent. So you try multiple other health professionals and services. You continue to have similar experiences. Or at the other end of the continuum, the behaviours you are describing are taken seriously, but the feedback that you get is that these behaviours are too extreme. As a result, you are put in the too hard basket, as the behaviours your child is displaying doesn't fit the remit of what that particular practitioner or service can provide you. Then finally, you find a service that appreciates your concerns for your child or young person, but you are told that there is over a two-year wait for you to access an assessment that can help you understand why your child is behaving the way that they are behaving and help you as a parent to put supports in place to help make things easier for you and your child. 
So the majority of children that we see in our clinic here at UQ are in out-of-home care. But for biological families, there's an added layer of complexity to this story. So imagine going through all this and knowing that you consumed high levels of alcohol while you were pregnant, and that this may be a contributing factor to the challenges that your child is experiencing. The guilt and shame that parents feel can be debilitating, and it can be a major barrier to families seeking help. Then on top of all this stress and distress, we now throw a global pandemic. Families and health services that were already stretched and overwhelmed are now pushed to breaking point. And we all know that COVID-19 has not been an equal opportunity pandemic, with our more vulnerable families being impacted the most. So as you heard in my introduction at the start, um, the children and adolescents that we work with have a condition called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD. This means that they have a foundational brain injury that occurred before they were born. The impacts that alcohol can have on the developing brain and body are widespread because alcohol has the potential to impact the development of all the organs and systems of the body during the prenatal period. The assessment results and the diagnosis of FASD helps us to understand that there are reasons for why your child is behaving the way they are behaving. Or as the young people who we see through our clinic tell us, who have gone their whole lives not knowing that they have FASD, they say, it's not that I'm stupid or that I don't want to listen to what the teacher is telling me. It's actually that I have FASD. And sometimes I need things to be explained differently to me so that I can understand. Children and young people with FASD need different strategies and extra supports to be able to be successful in their lives. And as we all know, with all conditions, the earlier you get those extra strategies and supports, the more likely you are to be successful. Recent research we have undertaken here at UQ shows that 48% of people in Australia report consuming alcohol while they are pregnant. For the majority of people, alcohol use occurs before they know they are pregnant. And once they find out they're pregnant, they're able to stop drinking. And it's important to consider that for some people, they don't find out they're pregnant until very late in the pregnancy. And a vital part of prevention that we need to discuss is the equitable access to contraception for all people in Australia particularly long-acting reversible forms of contraception, as people still face too many barriers in being able to access these more effective methods of contraception. As we all know, alcohol is a drug, and for some people, stopping, stopping drinking is not simple or straightforward. We hear heartbreaking stories from people about the difficult and sometimes horrible experience they, experiences they have been through and how they are using alcohol to cope. Sometimes parents have told us that they were so distressed during the pregnancy and they went to their health professionals for help. And they were provided with very unhelpful advice when they told their health professionals that they were drinking at high levels. Such as, well, you know that's bad for the baby, so you need to stop that. Come back and see me when you've stopped drinking without any support or referrals for further support being provided. 
For people who are experiencing an alcohol use disorder, stopping drinking can be life-threatening. So high levels of support are needed to enable people to cut back and stop safely. So we know that FASD is underdiagnosed in Australia. And the reasons for this include there being a lack of services out there in the community that prov will provide assessments that will consider FASD as one possible outcome. Health, re health professionals report to us that they're lacking knowledge and skills regarding asking about alcohol during pregnancy. And health professionals not feeling confident in undertaking the assessments and making a diagnosis of FASD. And most of all, parents who are out there feeling alone and ashamed. These are all things we are working to address through our neurodevelopmental clinic here at UQ. By training students, our future health professionals, and training health professionals out there in the community about prenatal alcohol and FASD, and providing assessment and support services for families. So together we are working to bring FASD out of the shadows and into the light, breaking down the shame and stigma through raising awareness and talking about FASD. And most importantly, providing compassionate and evidence-based care for all families. Thank you. Good night, everyone, and thank you very much.